Dissenters! Hands up! Welcome, dissidents. We're in the home stretch of the Supreme Court's term. The justices dropped quite a few opinions this week, so we're here to share our thoughts on the big dissents. I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Anastasia Bowden. And this week on Dist, it's a bonus episode. The court's decision is indefensible. I respectfully dissent. Because the majority in this case has not done what a court of law must do, I respectfully dissent. For these reasons and others elaborated, in my opinion, I respectfully dissent. We respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I dissent. So the Supreme Court released opinions on Monday and Wednesday of this week. It is Wednesday as we're recording this. Anastasia is coming to us live from the beach. And I'm here in in our Arlington office. And good news, not only are there dissents, but we got a ruling in a Pacific Legal Foundation case that we've been waiting for. So there was a dissent. So let's start with that one. Anastasia? Yes. Cedar Point Nursery popped the champagne. This was a big win for property rights today. This was a PLF case, as Elizabeth said. So I will try to be unbiased, but... And probably not, let's face it. So this was a challenge to a California law that allows labor unions to enter onto private agricultural property to unionize. And under this law, they are, they were, well, they are, we'll talk about that, permitted to uh, go on people's property three hours a day, 120 days a year. We had sued on behalf of two nurseries, Cedar Point, which is a strawberry grower, and Fowler Packing Company, which is a table grapes and citrus company. And we argue that this was a taking of private property that required just compensation under the 5th and 14th Amendments. And the district court dismissed on the theory that it was not a per se taking because although the law authorizes people to come onto your property and denies you the right to exclude, it's not a permanent taking, a permanent invasion because it was less than 24 7, 365 days a year. And so under that theory, this law is relegated to the Penn Central test that uh, regulatory takings are usually um, con- considered under. So we appealed because we believe that under prior precedent, any sort of uh, law that takes away your right to exclude and authorizes a physical invasion of your property is a per se taking. And the fact that it's fewer than 365 days a year just goes to how much compensation is owed. It doesn't go to whether this is a uh, taking in the first place. And the Supreme Court, in a decision, a 6-3 decision written by Chief Justice Roberts, agreed and said that, in fact, this is a per se taking. Uh, His opinion was joined by Thomas Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. And it's actually a really lovely opinion. It's very solid on property rights. It's not wishy-washy at all. It's very straightforward. It says, you know, if you look at prior precedent and just as a matter of logic, you can't change this taking into a not taking just by reducing the amount of days of a year that it applies. And I thought there was some lovely, you know, in to my mind, Kennedy-esque language because Kennedy <laughs> liked, liked fluffy language about the value of property rights. Chief Justice Roberts says that property must be secured or liberty cannot exist. He said that private property rights empower people to shape and plan their destiny in a world where the government is eager to do it for you. I thought 
I thought that was really nice. But there was a dissent, and that's what we're here to talk about. There was a dissent written by Justice Breyer, joined by uh, Justices Sotomayor and Kagan. And um, there's just some interplay between the majority and the dissent about how to view this law. You know, uh, they both they both are very straightforward. They think this is a straightforward reading of the text and common sense and precedent. And they just disagree about how to interpret this regulation. And Chief Justice Roberts thinks that you can't, you know, transform what is it taking into something else by using funny word games or reducing it? What if it was 364 days a year? Now, all of a sudden, it's not a taking anymore. It's subject to this regulatory takings test. So, yeah, I don't know. What do you think, Elizabeth? Any thoughts? So, Justice Breyer in his dissent says that rather than adopt a new broad rule and indeterminate exceptions, he would stick with the devil we know, which is a right of access is not automatically a taking. I like that turn of phrase. Apparently, he he doesn't necessarily like the uh, the previous rule, um, but he's accusing the majority of coming up with something new and that there are going to be line drawing problems for any time government needs to come onto your property. One last thing about Cedar Point was I think this is the real most beautiful line here. This is my takeaway, where Chief Justice Roberts said, we cannot agree that the right to exclude is an empty formality subject to modification at the government's pleasure. On the contrary, it is a fundamental element of the property right that cannot be balanced away. That's beautiful. I thought that was very nice. I know that was nice. Um, and also, last thing, this case was argued by not only our colleague, but my dear friend, Joshua Thompson. And I really thought that argument was just wonderful. It just showed how much preparation he did. And it's really interesting. I mean, even space uh, aliens or spacecraft comes up in a hypothetical. So I commend it to everyone. Take a listen. And it was his first SCOTUS argument. So well done. Well, well done, done, Joshua. Joshua. But... Moving on, we had two separation of powers cases this week, and they both have really fractured majorities. Uh, the takeaway, I think, from both of them, Arthrex and Collins, is that the Roberts Court is all about political accountability when it comes to these questions of the separation of powers. Um, so the first case, Arthrex, deals with administrative patent judges who have the power to hear claims um, seeking to cancel someone else's patent. So the issue was, are they principal officers of the United States, which means they have to be presidentially appointed and Senate confirmed, or are they inferior officers, which means Congress can vest their appointment in a department head? And the Supreme Court actually didn't answer that question, but the majority opinion by Chief Justice Roberts says uh, these patent judges are constitutionally problematic because they exercise an authority that he thinks is incompatible with everything else that makes them look like they appear to be inferior officers. Uh, the fact that they can exercise, they have the final say over the cancellation of patents, and their boss, the head of the patent office, can't override them. So what did the chief do? Uh, he rewrote the statute dealing with the administrative patent judges and their powers to say that the director has the power to review their decisions dealing with the cancellation of patents. And Justice Gorsuch concurred in part, dissented in part, and he takes issue with this legislative revision, and he has some really great lines in his opinion where he says, um, short of summoning ghosts and spirits, 
How are we to know what those in past con- in a past Congress might think about a question they never expressed any view on and may have never foreseen? And he calls this basically a legislative seance and says it's it's as problematic from a separation of powers perspective as the issue that the majority is trying to fix because it requires the court to make policy choices that should be left to Congress. The real uh, headline, though, I think, is there was a dissent written by Clarence Thomas, uh, the birthday boy, his birthday is today, um, joined by Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan, if you can believe it. It is certainly strange bedfellows to see uh, that group together. But Thomas's dissent, he writes that um, these administrative patent judges are appointed consistent with the appointments clause. The Constitution doesn't say anything about powers that are to be exercised by inferior officers versus principal officers. Um, So that's the end of the case. He says there's some real line drawing problems here if final action is the line between inferior versus principal officers. And he has this great passage where he says, if faced with a life-threatening scenario, can an FBI agent use deadly force to subdue a suspect? Or if an inferior officer temporarily fills a vacant office tasked with making final decisions, do those decisions violate the appointments clause? Are courts around the country supposed to sort through lists of each officer's duties, categorize each one of them as principal or inferior, and then excise any that look problematic? Well, I guess this is is something we like to harp on here on this pod uh, about, as you said, the strange bedfellows and the, the composition of the majority versus the dissent. And, you know, we always like to say that it undermines the narrative that uh, judging is pure partisan politics. But what I read on Twitter, you know, where all the best news is, Elizabeth, I read on Twitter that that this composition, that all these cases that are coming out right now um, in ways that people wouldn't expect, that's just proof that the threat of court packing worked and that it is politics because mm-hmm. now they're all changing their their opinions that they can, uh, you know, line up and have peace and, and avoid court packing. So I thought that was funny that I think this completely destroys the popular narrative about judging. And yet there's people out there claiming that, no, this actually, you know, bolsters that narrative. It bolsters their conspiracy. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so then the other separation of powers case that came out this morning, and let me tell you, I it's making my head hurt looking at all the concurrences here. But this is Collins. This was a case challenging the structure of the Federal Housing Finance Agency, um, which Congress created in response to the mortgage meltdown crisis in the early 2000s. So this agency has regulatory and enforcement authority over Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which are the companies that dominate the secondary mortgage market. So Congress gave this agency head, uh, this director, tenure protection. um, So the president, you know, can't fire the director at will. So shareholders of Fannie and Freddie brought this case, um, arguing that the the agency director took actions that basically wiped out the value of their stocks. And in the course of this lawsuit, they challenged the constitutionality of the agency's structure. So this was, again, a fractured majority written by um, Justice Samuel Alito. And the main takeaway is that Congress can't shield this agency director from political accountability by limiting the president's ability to fire him or her. Um, but the remedy is where uh, where the, the action is in 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 the concurrences. So uh, the remedy is basically remanding back to the lower court to determine 
what harm, if any, actions taken by this unconstitutionally insulated director caused. Uh, So there are a lot of concurrences on this part. But an additional wrinkle that I think really complicated this case was that um, the actions that are challenged span uh, span several years, and it started with an acting director. So that's somebody who isn't who you know is just filling up a, a, a post temporarily. So an acting director could be fired at will. Uh, but then later, a presidentially appointed Senate confirmed director was put in place, and so that person continued some of the acting director's policies, uh, but was unconstitutionally insulated from presidential control. If this is making your head explode. Um, You know where I'm at this morning. Yeah, so lots of concurrences. Justice Thomas concurred, saying he's not sure there was any unlawful action at all. Uh, Justice Gorsuch says, you know, he doesn't agree with this remedy, and this kind of harkens back to what he said in the Arthrex case. He calls this remedial science fiction to remand, asking the lower court to speculate about what would have happened in a different world where the agency director could have been fired? And he says, you know, he thinks, he suggests that the the real world consequences of this case, which is that, uh, you know, giving the shareholders the relief they are seeking would involve unwinding or disgorging hundreds of millions of dollars that have already changed hands. So Gorsuch says, for my part, rather than carve out some suit-specific removal-only money-in-the-bank exception to our normal rules for Article Two violations, I would take a simpler path. And he would uh, give the shareholders the relief that they are entitled to. The consequences be damned. Uh, Justice Kagan also concurred, and it's an ode to stare decisis because the court was applying a ruling from last term, CELA law, dealing with the uh, the CFPB, which she dissented from that ruling, and she says that's not a reason not to follow it now, but uh, she would not join the majority's mistaken musings about how to create a workable government um, because she didn't join the entirety of the majority's opinion, um, cause we have to, you know, keep it interesting for, for people tallying up the, the, uh, the score here. And then finally getting to an actual dissent in part, Justice Sotomayor wrote a part concurrence, part dissent. And she says that the, the head of this agency is constitutionally insignificant and doesn't really have important powers. It doesn't It doesn't regulate private parties. Um, it's important to have independence from politics for financial regulators. And so um, she thinks that this is sufficiently different from the CELA law case involving the CFPB from last term. So the takeaway from these two complicated, fractured separation of powers cases, um, Congress stop trying to create independent officials that exercise executive power. Um, The president has to be able to control, which means fire, people who help him carry out the law. So that is the end of my separation of powers rant. I, I, it's, I'm on the beaches of Mexico. I don't have brain capacity to comment further on that. Well done, Elizabeth. (laughs) 
So let's move to the probably the most newsworthy case, the potty mouth cheerleader. The cursing cheerleader. I love this case. That's that's why I, I had to make it to this bonus episode today just to talk about this case. Well, and our big win in, in Cedar Point. In this cursing cheerleader case, uh, this involved uh, the cursing cheerleader who, after failing to make the varsity cheer team, posted a nasty gram on social media on Snapchat to be specific. Um, which was, you know, it had some profanity in it. She was not happy to not have made the team. Um, It may also have involved a middle finger. I believe she flipped the bird, if I recall correctly. And some of the other people who saw this post reported it to the school and the team, and they suspended her from the junior varsity uh, cheer team for a year. And she brought suit arguing that this violated her First Amendment rights. She argued that it was unconstitutional for them to punish her for her off-campus speech. And just really quickly, I digress to say it's not only unconstitutional. I think it's really creepy. It is so creepy to me that the school is trying to police the off-campus, you know, behavior and speech um, of the students because they thought it was, you know, inappropriate or bad behavior. The state is not our mommy and daddy. This, you know, our mommy and daddy are our mommy and daddies. That's the role of the parents, not of the state. It's just paternalistic and weird if you ask me. But anyway, the district court relied on Tinker versus Des Moines, which was uh, a Supreme Court case where uh, some students had worn black armbands to protest the Vietnam War. And the district court said, well, under the test established in that case, there was no harm here um, that the school could be claim claiming to to remedy. Like it didn't need to punish her because it didn't have an interest in there was no harm as established in Tinker. And the Third Circuit affirms, but instead it goes a little bit further and it says that Tinker does not apply essentially to off-campus speech. Um, and so SCOTUS took up the question of whether Tinker does apply to off-campus speech. And the Supreme Court said, maybe it might, but not here. Um, It said that there might be some times where the school has an interest because there's severe harassment. I mean, the the types of cases that it outlines are, you know, pretty intense. There has to be a significant allegation of harm. There's harassment, there's threats, um, or maybe kids aren't, uh, aren't respecting the rules regarding how they can use, um, computers or or uh, how they can write essays and do homework or there's a threat to school security but off campus there are going to be very few circumstances where the state can assert that type of harm Um, and they give three reasons why the majority says there's no in loco parentis going on here where the school's standing in for the parents because it's off campus and secondly that would engage, that would encompass, pardon me, all of the speech that students have, because now not only could schools regulate the speech, you know, they have some interest in regulating some speech on campus, but now the rest of the day, anywhere they are, their students have to worry about what they say because they might be subject to um, some sort of discipline in the school. 
it was an 8-1 decision written by Justice Breyer, joined by Robert Salito, Sotomayor, Kagan, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. The only dissenter, the lone dissenter, was Justice Thomas. So today was a dissenting day for Thomas. Doing what he does best on his birthday. Um, so we don't really know when Tinker will apply, but it may apply off campus. And, and here it was a big win for free speech, basically. You know, we have to respect... We have to respect people's free speech rights and be wary of the state creeping into, uh, you know, asserting an interest in regulating uh, people's behavior, students' behavior off campus. I mean, my hot take of it all is that this is this whole thing, like I said at the outset, is so strange to me. It's really the coddling of the American mind here that the school had uh, had asserted an interest in. you know, protecting the other children from this vulgarity on Snapchat. I mean, really, they said it disrupted the school day. It turned out it was only, you know, it, it carried over into, you know, the next period at school, the geometry class or what have you, some math class, some people were talking about it. But truly, can the state say that children are so harmed, they're, you know, by the speech that that they need uh, to stifle and censor other students to protect the other kids? I mean, we have to, we have to toughen up, Buttercup. We have to learn to live with people's bad behavior, I think. Little snowflakes can't handle a little profanity on Snapchat. So on that point, toughening up, I thought it was interesting that in Justice Breyer's majority, he includes the full four-letter word that she used multiple times. Uh, By comparison, Justice Thomas's dissent includes... uh, the asterisk version of that four-letter word. And since we're ladies, we won't use it on this podcast, but um, the ACLU is now selling T-shirts with uh, what the what the cheerleader said in, in her Snapchat post. Um, so Thomas's dissent, while interesting, I think it wasn't terribly surprising because he's written – in uh, you know, in in several cases in the past, that basically kids have very limited constitutional rights when they enter the schoolhouse. Uh, you know, there was a case several years ago involving a 13-year-old girl who was strip searched at school, and whether that was a Fourth Amendment violation. And uh, he dissented from the majority ruling for um, for the ACLU, which represented the girl in that in that case. So I think that's. That's uh, kind of interesting. But his dissent, you know, goes back to look at the, you know, the, the history of, of the First Amendment and free speech um, for, you know, as it relates to schools leading up to Tinker um, in, in the 1960s. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. You wouldn't expect, you know, this case of the curse and cheerleader to go into the original public meaning of the First and Fourteenth Amendments. I thought that was kind of cool. And, you know, he says if you go back that certainly students were allowed to be punished for for off-campus speech. And, and Alito, in his concurrence, doesn't find that persuasive. He does address some of that and say, no, these cases aren't on point. And we truly could not have... The founders, the framers wouldn't have uh, expected this to happen, but uh, I, I really didn't expect to have a debate about original public meaning in this in this case. It was kind of interesting. Yeah, definitely. Worth, worth a read. Okay. Well, I think we can end with a little game that we like to call Name That Descent. All right, Elizabeth, are you ready? As ready as I'll ever be. All right, here's your first dissent. 
I find it a sufficient embarrassment that our establishment clause jurisprudence regarding holiday displays has come to require scrutiny more commonly associated with interior decorators than with the judiciary. So that's Justice Scalia in, um, it's the three reindeer rule case, right? It's, um, uh, I forget the name of it. It's out, It's from Pennsylvania, I think, right? Lee versus Allegheny Wiseman. County? This was, oh, no, Lee, it's Lee versus, versus Wiseman. Wiseman. Yeah. Oh, man. But you were right. It was Scalia. I mean, you know, Scalia, you know who writes yeah. a good phrase like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this was him dissenting from the case allowing clergy to offer prayers at public school ceremonies. So, all right. Well, yeah, I feel like you get half a point for that. Okay, on to number two. <laughs> Number two, this is what this suit is about. Power. I actually said that wrong. It's that is what the suit is about. Power. I mean, is that uh, that's Scalia's descent in Morrison, right? Yay. Do, okay. Do, 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 do. It sure was. You know, one of the you know most talked about descents on our pilot episode. So many people in the constitutional law world have said that this is one of their favorite and most powerful descents. Yes. And we had a whole episode about it. That's right. So check it out about Morrison versus Olson. Check it out, people. All right. Last one. The broad provisions of the Bill of Rights are not suspended by the mere existence of a state of war. Distinctions based on color and ancestry are utterly inconsistent with our traditions and ideals. So that's Korematsu. Um, did Jackson descend in Korematsu? Justice Frank Murphy in Korematsu. Oh, man, Frank Murphy. Well, also an FDR appointee. I think they both were. So, you know, that's like close, right? It's like three quarters of a point there. I got the case. I got the the, the president who appointed the same justice, you know. That's true. Really, all you need is the case name. Full points. Full points. Woohoo! <laughs> Uh, we hope you enjoyed this little bonus episode, including Anastasia's contribution from the beach. <laughs> yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we love your feedback. We love the emails. So keep them coming. Send your questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes to dist at pacificlegal.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating. We are really close to 100 ratings five stars only please uh and tell your friends to check out dist <laughs>